0: Incredible trail reports peppered with phrases like stunning views, photographer's dream, and crystal lake can almost make you ignore other phrases like aggressive ascent, grueling, or sheer rock. How can you tell if your hike is a good match for your skill level? Then we'll share a fun trip report from a listener in Australia where our winter, is their summer. Next, a recipe from our new book, Trail Grazing, that will keep you fueled and happy on your next outdoor adventure. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. A couple months ago, we got a message on Facebook from one of our listeners named Jory. She was coming up on a milestone birthday, and so her and a friend wanted to do something significant. They decided to do two long hikes. But then Jory started to get second thoughts, and here's what she wrote. She said, we're getting conflicting initial advice on how doable these hikes are. We don't want to sell ourselves short, but we don't want to be an emergency waiting to happen. We both have not a ton of backpacking experience, and I'm worried about being someone else's cautionary tale. She continues, how do you decide if the route is a good match for your skills and experience? How can I decode some of the buzzwords on trail reviews and get a real sense of whether this is worth the attempt? Jory's questions were so important that we felt like it was worth sharing on today's episode.
1: And Jory really wanted to figure this out, partly because she had signed up for some trips that were going to take her all the way to New Zealand. and She didn't want to fly all the way to New Zealand and just discover a day into the trip that this was way beyond her ability. And to have this ruined trip to a foreign country...
0: The hospital uh, of a foreign country, perhaps.
1: uh, Everything foreign. (laughs) Right. She wanted to have a great experience, but she wanted to know in advance that it could be a great experience and she hadn't signed up for the guided trips in New Zealand partly because of the cost and partly because the itineraries just didn't match her schedule so that's a lot of investment into a trip and you kind of want to make sure that it's going to work
0: yeah and when you see those ratings on a website that has trip reports and it has difficulty four out of five stars what does that mean? What exactly are they basing this difficulty on?
1: It's hard to tell. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, when we look back to our Spring Break 2017 trip that we did at Ecola State Park uh, out on Tillamook Head on the coast, reading the trail reports, we knew it was going to be muddy. But knowing it was going to be muddy from trail reports was different than knowing that it was muddy because we hiked it (laughs) and it was muddy. (laughs) <laughs> that's, a different, that's a different kind of knowledge. How do you gain that knowledge of experience prior to the experience? That's pretty tough. So for today's top five list, we're going to share five ways that you can tell if a trip is going to be a good match for you. So when Jory's question came in, I was the one that responded. And I said, well, episode 148, that was called Skip the Trip and that episode was about making the go-no-go decision on an upcoming trip. could be impacted by things like the weather forecast and stuff like that. But other listeners have also asked us for more information on making that go-no-go decision on a trip, and not just due to the circumstances like the weather forecast, but just overall. Is this a trip that is wise for me to do today? Next year? I mean, any time. Is this a trip that is going to match my ability, my skill level? And am I going to match the trip? Is it going to be a good fit? So as I answered Joy's questions, um, I realized that I had come up with a top five list. So here we go.
0: These are all data points. I like how you describe them as data points. You're such a data dude.
1: Yeah, I guess I am.
0: (laughs) You guess you are.
1: Okay, I know I am.
0: Thank you, thank you.
1: (laughs) all right so my first data point (laughs) my first question to ask yourself is how much weight will you be carrying and the rest of the questions in this top five list depend on this first question because if you're going to be carrying 15 pounds because you're going to be staying in huts every night and everything's furnished then you know you can do a lot more miles and a lot more terrain then, if your pack is going to be 50 pounds because you don't have any lightweight backpacking gear and you are carrying everything you could possibly need, in which case you're going to be doing fewer miles and easier terrain. So first, how much weight will you be carrying? And then for the rest of the questions, I'm just going to assume we're carrying about 30 pounds. That's a, like a, a good, um, I don't know, how would you describe that weight? Middle of the road? Yeah. It's easy to carry more than that. But it's not too hard to whittle your weight down to 30 pounds and to still have your shelter and sleeping bag and clothing and food and all of that.
0: Well, I would say 30 pounds is the weight that you can get to without spending enormous amounts of money to whittle down your weight. So you can do 30 pounds on a budget and to have more than 30 pounds, you probably are carrying stuff that you chose to carry. You know, maybe a book or a gun or... You know, some of those heavy things, dog food, maybe, I don't know. All sorts of things go into people's packs that make them weigh more and for lots of different reasons. But 30 pounds is a good, like you said, middle of the road weight.
1: I've done lots of trips at 40 pounds, but 30 was kind of my target to shoot for. And that extra 10 pounds really does make a difference.
0: The next data point that you need to look at is the distance. And you can figure about 5 to 10 miles a day. That's a good comfortable pace or length for a day. Unless you're a thru-hiker. And thru-hikers usually do about 20 plus miles a day every day. But this is assuming you're not a thru-hiker.
1: Yeah, even thru-hikers take a couple weeks to ramp up to their marathon a day pace that some of them do. It's incredible. Like, I don't know how they do it. And the reason I don't know how they do it is because I've never taken a long enough hike to actually get through that ramp up phase to where I really build up the stamina to do, you know, 25 miles a day. So if you're just going out, you know, you have a desk job during the day and now you're taking a week off for a backpacking trip. It's amazing how 10 miles can fill your day or even five miles sometimes.
0: Right, so five to 10 miles a day is doable, but you don't have to push yourself. You could do between two to five miles a day, and that's okay.
1: Question number three is, what's the elevation going to be? Hiking at sea level and hiking at 10,000 feet are very different from each other in terms of how your lungs work and how your blood flow works. If you're going to be hiking at a high elevation, well, if you live in a high elevation, then you're acclimated and you'll be fine. But if you're like us and you live at 150 feet above sea level, (laughs) then that switch to 10,000 feet, it really knocks the wind out of you.
0: It does. And it's not a joke. It's not like, oh, no, I can handle it. No, it really does affect you. Elevation not only knocks the wind out of you, but can lead to things like altitude sickness. There are some real risks associated with hiking at higher elevations if you're not used to it. But if you can spend a couple of days beforehand at that high elevation acclimating, then you'll do a lot better at high elevation. The next data point is what's the elevation gain or drop? Anything under a thousand feet per mile is pretty standard your basic up and down not too bad anything over 1000 feet per mile that's going to be feeling pretty strenuous you might hear people around you start to murmur a little bit because you'll be feeling it and your calves will be feeling it at the end of the day and the next morning
1: this is a good rule of thumb obviously there are people who are going to be like what a thousand feet a mile that's nothing but if you're a new backpacker and you have 30 pounds on your back, then 1,000 feet a mile is something. And yeah, you can build up your strength to where 1,000 feet a mile is no big deal. But certainly under 1,000 feet a mile is pretty uh, going, I'd say.
0: And a lot of people think that elevation gain is hard. The gain is going uphill. But elevation drop can be just as hard on your body as the elevation gain. When you're going uphill and you're sweating and you're breathing hard, it feels like hard work. But downhill is where your knees can really take a beating and you start feeling it in your legs. So both elevation gain and elevation drop need to be taken into consideration when you're looking at the elevation change in a hike.
1: Yeah, remember day one of our first 40 miles, of your first 40 miles, the uh, Timberline Trail.
0: Right, I remember going through the rhododendrons, and it was all downhill. And I thought, before I took that hike, that downhill was supposed to be easy, but it's so, so hard.
1: One of our buddies in our hiking group, his knees really got sore from day one. Yeah. And he was on ibuprofen the rest of the week.
0: Yeah, it's hard.
1: Well, the fifth question to tell if a hike is going to be a good match for you is, what will the weather be like? This is both a general question and a specific question. So if you're going to New Zealand in January, then you can ask the question generally and say, okay, it's going to be summertime, and that's certainly different than winter hiking. Trudging through snow, well, that takes a ton of extra effort, lots of additional energy. You can also ask the question specifically, what is the weather forecast? for the week that I'm going to be there. Well, if you're doing long range planning, you're trying to buy airplane tickets and everything and it's a few months out, you can't ask the specific question of what's the weather forecast, but that's okay. You can still ask the general question of what's the weather usually like that time of year in that place. And if it's high elevation, even in the summer, it could get cold, but you probably can be sure that during the daytime, it's gonna warm up. So my personal kind of rule of thumb is that if it's 45 degrees Fahrenheit or colder, that is a trip that starts making me feel cold. And I need extra calories and extra clothing to be comfortable in 45 degrees or below. If the temperatures are generally above 45 degrees, then that's a trip where with just my usual clothing that I bring with me and my usual supply of calories, I'm gonna be pretty comfortable especially when I'm on the trail and I'm moving. It could be 55 degrees and I could be in short sleeves because I'm exerting effort and staying warm just by carrying my backpack up that 1,000-foot-per-mile trail at 10,000 feet elevation. But when it's cold, you, you've got to take into account that you're going to have more clothing and more food, and, you know, everything is going to take longer. Setting up your tent in the rain, clearing out a patch in the snow... All of that just takes longer in the cold so those are the five data points that we'd recommend to figure out if a trip is a good match for you how much am i carrying how far am i going how high is the elevation how much elevation change do i have and what will the weather be like when jory asked us this question it was the week after i had gone on that trinity alps hike that i took with two of our sons that was the trip where up to the very morning of the trip I still hadn't made the decision on whether to go or not. Well, I decided to go, and if you want to hear about that trip, check out episode 153. That was the Trinity Alps trip report, and I'm really glad I decided to go. The weather was, that was probably the hardest piece. But I ended up going, and the weather ended up turning out quite nice for that trip, and two of our sons and I had a great time. So, fresh off of that trip, I said to Jory, go for it. Even if the weather had been terrible, I think I could have found a plan B that would have been fun with our two kids.
0: Well, we're going to stay on the Down Under theme for today. We have Jory going to New Zealand, and then we got a story from one of our listeners. This one is from Australia. It does make us a little bit jealous that our friends down in Australia having summer while we're having winter so we hope you enjoy this clip from the trip from Australia
2: hey guys it's Kate Benny here Uh, we're an Aussie family of five we go by Sons of Adventure on social media we have just completed we've just had our spring break and we've just completed the Uruguay coastal walk in New South Wales Australia and this was a five-day hike. It was about sixty-five kilometers, and we had an awesome time. So our three boys are Zach. He's thirteen. Eli's eleven, and Cadell is nine. And um, this was a, a hike where we had to carry all of our stuff on our all of our camping gear in our packs on our backs. So it was a challenge for the boys travelling that sort of distance, but it was awesome. Um, we travelled through the traditional homelands of the Aboriginal people in that local area and that was absolutely fantastic to have, be privileged to be able to do that. So the hike was made up of like massive long stretches of sandy beaches, heathland plains, tidal rock shelves and headlands that had the most amazing views. We could stand on the headlands and see whales, migrating whales breaching just off the coast. So it was absolutely amazing. Some of the stretches of beaches were really remote and uh, it was just amazing. We felt like we were the only people in the entire world. So there's nothing quite like you know, walking along a beach and the only sets of footprints are your family's footprints. So that was really special. Uh, The wildlife and the bird life were absolutely amazing. We saw osprey and black cockatoos. We had kangaroos around our campsite one morning. Uh, And as we walked on the rock shelves, it was really great for the kids to be able to spot you know, coral and all sorts of colourful creatures in the rock pools. It was really, really rugged walking along those rock shelves as well. Uh, A bit slow going, but really fun. Uh, We kept an eye out for the endangered coastal emus, but we weren't lucky enough to see any of those. There's only about 100 left in the entire park, so they're quite rare. One of the highlights, as far as the boys are concerned, is actually seeing a couple of beached whales on the beach, which was really sad and unfortunate. Um, they are in a, a state of, they were actually decomposing really badly and smelt bad. But for some reason, when people ask the boys how the hike went, that's what they tell them about because I guess they found it really interesting and, and it was quite educational for them as well to see that. The views were absolutely stunning, really beautiful piece of Australian coastline, so we really enjoyed that. Um, One of the other highlights was one morning we had to cross this crystal clear creek. It was absolutely beautiful, but it was high tide because it's just the way that the the tides were going that day for us. We had to head off. So we actually had to wade through chest deep water with our packs over our heads. Um, It was really the boys thought it was really, really fun. It was exciting. That's that's what they love. That's why they do it. They also loved exploring on this island by themselves. There was a, a bit of a, a pathway to the island that when the tide came up, it disappeared. Um, and they just loved going over there. And they actually filmed a video and, and explored by themselves. So they loved that. That's called Plover Island. Some of the challenges were, you know, when you're walking along a 10-kilometre stretch of beach, the boys will sort of get a bit of, along and then they'll look back and go, oh, We've hardly, you know, we've hardly come along this beach at all. We've got such a long way to go. So we were really proud of how they just kept going, uh, didn't get too discouraged. They did get a bit discouraged, but they kept going and pushed through. And it was really, yeah, really amazing to see. Um, so they, they were sort of some of the high points and low points of the hike. But most of all, it was a great time as a family together to be able to just completely be able to have an adventure and bond together. The boys, you know there was only each other to hang out with uh there were no other hikers on the track for the, um, for the entire way that we saw. there were, We did see people in villages as we went through and people around the villages um, and there were cars, some of the beaches actually, the road to some towns. So we did see people but there were no other hikers that we met um, doing the entire hike. So that was really special. Um, definitely something that we would recommend as a massive family adventure. Uh, we got amazing photos. We had great times together and, yeah, just a really unique experience for our family.
0: So, thanks, Kate, for sharing. That sounded like a ton of fun. And if you're interested in hearing more about what Kate and her family are doing, you can go to sonsofadventure.com. You can also find them on Facebook and follow their adventures. So, for today's backpack hack of the week, I wanted to share a recipe from trail grazing, but I'm going to do this randomly. I'm going to flip through the ebook here. Scroll up, scroll down, scroll sideways.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. We could be on a totally different book by then.
0: That's right. How to talk to your cat about gun control.
1: (laughs) That was one that came up in a white elephant gift exchange last week.
0: Okay, I've got one. What is this? What is it? This is, oh, this is black bean brownies. This is a good one. So this recipe for black bean brownies is from the book Trail Grazing, which just came out a few weeks ago. And this recipe makes an eight by eight pan of brownies. The entire pan, if you'd like to eat the whole pan, is 2,167 calories. So while these brownies are only about 76 calories an ounce, kind of on the lower end, they do provide a ton of fiber. All right, so for this recipe, you'll need one can of black beans, rinsed and drained, or if you like to do it yourself with black beans, just a cup and a half of cooked black beans. You'll also need one cup of dates, a half cup of oats, a half cup of water, a fourth cup of cocoa powder, two teaspoons of vanilla, a teaspoon of baking powder, and then one cup of chocolate chips. To make these brownies, you add all of the ingredients, except for the chocolate chips, into a blender or a food processor. Blend it until everything is pureed. Then add one cup of chocolate chips and pulse it a couple times until the chips are incorporated. Then you spread the brownie batter into a parchment-lined, microwave-safe 8x8 baking dish and microwave it for 4 minutes and 30 seconds. This is kind of a unique way of making brownies but it works. After the brownies come out of the microwave, you'll wanna sprinkle that last half cup of chocolate chips on top and just kind of wait for them to melt. Then carefully spread the melted chocolate chips on top of the brownies and let the brownies cool completely before cutting. After you cut them, just wrap them individually and store them in an airtight container. Now, if you prefer the old fashioned way of making brownies, These can be baked in the oven instead of the microwave. You just bake them at 350 for 15 to 18 minutes.
1: Here's some cool things about this recipe. One is the whole food ingredients. We're not using any kind of a mix or even refined flours, any of that. The sugar is coming naturally from dates, although we do have the chocolate chips too, and sugar is coming from the chocolate chips. So it's not entirely whole foods with this recipe, but most of the ingredients are whole food ingredients. Another thing is how quick it is. Yeah, you could do it in the oven, but once you've learned this microwave trick, you're gonna be like, huh, that's easy. Just a few minutes in the microwave, you have brownies. It's really cool. I mean, you can do this recipe the morning of your hike. It's that quick. And then also, for people who are vegan, most of the recipes in trail grazing are already vegan. I think this one is. Black beans, dates, oats, water, cocoa powder, vanilla, baking powder, chocolate chips. There's no animal products in this recipe. And many of the recipes in trail grazing are like that. Um, Now, if you're a meat lover, you're going to love the whole food jerky recipes in trail grazing. So we've got something for everyone. But many recipes... Uh, just right out of the box. They're whole food. Uh, Many of them are vegan. They're ingredients that you have right in your pantry, right in your kitchen, and they're so fast to make. It's incredible. And it was cool to watch your process. Um, We have a draft version of this recipe that had refined sugar and vegetable oil, And you found ways to take those out and replace them with whole ingredients.
0: Yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading lately on whole food plant-based eating, and I just think it's fascinating the idea that you can convert these old unhealthy recipes into ones that are more nutrient-dense. And backpacking has, in some ways, brought me on this whole food plant-based journey because I was so confused about why we're doing this really healthy activity in the mountains and we're eating all this garbage. So there's still room in life for garbage and, you know, popsicles and candy canes and M&Ms and all that stuff. But I'm trying really hard to have more of a nutritionally dense foundation while I'm backpacking instead of a junk food foundation. So that was where the inspiration came for trail grazing.
1: We'll have this recipe for black bean brownies in today's show notes at thefirstfortymiles.com slash 163. Also, last month, we invited two of our sons to make videos showing one of the recipes from the trail grazing book. And believe it or not, we have a YouTube channel. This YouTube (laughs) channel has a music video on it that has a few hundred views. And then it has this video about jet boil stoves that has like 25,000 views. I don't know why. And these two videos uh, of recipes from trail grazing, one from each of uh, two of our sons. Go check them out and see what you think, see how they did. And of course, you'll get two more recipes from the book by watching those videos. Uh, but to get the book itself, go to the 1st 40 milescom slash grazing book. Or just look for Trail Grazing on Amazon or iTunes. On Amazon, you can get the ebook or the paperback version of the book.
0: And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, David Brill. And this is from As Far As the Eye Can See. He said, I never imagined that existence could be so simple, so uncluttered, so Spartan so free of baggage, so sublimely gratifying. I have reduced the weight of my pack to 35 pounds, and yet I can't think of a single thing I really need that I can't find, either within myself or within my pack. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Check out our new book, Trail Grazing, on Amazon or iTunes. We'll see you next time on the first... 40 miles Do the rest of the show. Do the rest (laughs) of the show. Uh-huh. Right.
1: (laughs) Okay. Once you've learned this microwave trip...
0: (laughs) Trump impeachment vote fails overwhelmingly. Thank you, Google. (laughs)